Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners. Oh, yes, Irish folk tales. And this is a continuation of the boyhood of Fune. And I'm not going to waste any time here. So ensure you have your hot beverage at the ready. Turn off the lights, turn up the sound. And if you're in an office, find a quiet place to zone out that noise. And join me for an Irish folktale. The Boyhood of Fune, Chapter 7 A new life of Fune in the robber's den that was hidden in a vast cold marsh. A tricky place that would be with sudden exits and even suddener entrances, and with damp, winding, spidery places to hoard treasure in, or to hide oneself in. If the robber was a solitary, he would, for a lack of someone else, have talked greatly to Fune. He would have shown his weapons and demonstrated how he'd use them, and with what slash he chipped his victim, and with what slice he chopped him. He would have told why a slash was enough for this man and why that man should be sliced. All men are masters when one is young, and Fune would have found knowledge here also. He would have seen the robber's great spear that had 30 rivets of Arabian gold in its sockets, and that had to be wrapped up and kept tied down, so that it would not kill people out of mere spite. It had come from the fairy, out of the she of Aelin Macmidna, and it would be brought back again later, on between the same man's shoulder blades. What tales that man could tell a boy, and what questions a boy could ask him. He would have known a thousand tricks, and because our instinct is to teach, and because no man can keep a trick from a boy, he would show them to Fune. There was the marsh too, a whole new life to be learned. A complicated, mysterious, dank, slippery, reedy, treacherous life but with his own beauty and allurement that could grow on one, so that you could forget the solid world and love only that which quaked and gurgled. In this place you may swim, by this sign and this you will know if it is safe to do so, said Fiacul Mac Connor. But in this place, with this sign on it and that, you must not venture a toe. For when Fune would venture his toes, his ears would follow. There are coiling weeds down there, the robber counseled him. There are thin, tough, snaky binders that will trip and grip you, that will pull you and will not let you go again until you are drowned, until you are swaying and swinging away below with outstretched arms, with outstretched legs, with a face all stares and smiles and jockeyings, gripped in those leathery arms until there is no more to be gripped of you even by them. Watch these, and this, and that, Fune would have been told, and always swim with a knife in your teeth. He lived there until his guardians found out where he was and came after him. Fearcule gave him up to them, and he was brought home again to the woods of Sleeve Bloom, but he had gathered great knowledge and new suppleness. The sons of Morna left him alone for a long time. Having made their essay, they grew careless, let him be, they said. He will come to us when the time comes. But it is likely, too, that they had their own means of getting information about him. 
how he shaped, what muscles he had, and did he spring clean from the muck, or did he get off with a push? Fune stayed with his guardians and hunted for them. He could run a deer down and haul it home by the reluctant skull. Come on, Gull, he would say to his stag, or lifting it over a tussock with a tough grip on the snout. Are you coming, bold Conan, or shall I kick you in the neck? The time must have been nigh when he would think of taking the world itself by the nose, to haul it over tussocks and drag it into his pen, for he was of the breed in whom mastery is born, and to our good masters. But reports of his prowess were getting abroad. Clan Morna began to stretch itself uneasily, and one day his guardian sent him on his travels. It is best for you to leave us now, they said to the tall stripling, for the sons of Morna are watching again to kill you. The woods at they may have seemed haunted, a stone might sling at one from a treetop, but from which tree of a thousand trees did it come? An arrow, buzzing by one's ear, would slide into the ground and quiver there silently, menacingly, hinting of the brothers it had left in the quiver behind. To the right, to the left, how many brothers, in how many quivers? Fune was a woodsman, but only two eyes to look with, one set of feet to carry him in one sole direction. But when he was looking to the front, what, or how many watts, could be staring at him from the back? He might face in this direction, away from or towards a smile on a hidden face and a finger on a string. And a lance might slide at him from this bush or from the one yonder. In the night he might have fought them, his ears against theirs, his noiseless feet against their lurking ones, his knowledge of the wood against their legion. But during the day, he had no chance. Fune went to seek his fortune, to match himself against all that might happen, and to carve a name for himself that will live while time has an ear and knows an Irishman. Chapter 8 Fune went away, and now he was alone. But he was fitted for loneliness, as the crane is that haunts the solitudes and bleak wastes of the sea. For the man with the thoughts has a comrade, and Fune's mind worked as fitly as his body did. To be alone was no trouble to him, who, however surrounded, was to be lonely in his life long. For this will be said of Fune when all is said, that all that came to him went from him, and that happiness was never his companion for more than a moment. But he was now not looking for loneliness. He was seeking the instruction of a crowd, and therefore when he met a crowd, he went into it. His eyes were skilled to observe in the morning dusk and dapple of green woods. They were trained to pick out of shadows, birds that were themselves dun-colored shades, and to see among trees the animals that are colored like the bark of trees. The hair crouching in the fronds was visible to him, and the fish that swayed invisibly in the sway and flicker of a green bank. He would see all that was to be seen. He would see all that is passed by the eye that is half blind from use and wont. At a lake, he came on lads swimming in the pool, and as he looked on them sporting in the flush tide, he thought that the tricks they performed were not hard for him, and that he would have shown them new ones. Boys must know what another boy can do and they will match themselves against everything. They did their best under these observing eyes, and it was not long until he was invited to compete with them and show his mettle. 
just an invitation is a challenge, it is almost among boys. A declaration of war. But Fune was so far beyond them in swimming that even the word master did not apply to that superiority. While he was swimming, one remarked, He is fair and well shaped. And thereafter he was called Fune or the Fair One. His name came from boys and will perhaps be preserved by them. He stayed there with these lads for some time, and it may be that they idolized him at first, for it is the way with boys to be astounded and enraptured by feats, but in the end, and that was inevitable, they grew jealous of the stranger. Those who had been the champions before he came would marshal each other, and, by social pressure, would muster all the others against him so that in the end not a friendly eye was turned on Fune in that assembly. For not only did he beat them at swimming, he beat their best at running and jumping, and when the sport degenerated into violence, as it was bound to, the roughness of Fune would be ten times as rough as the roughness of the roughest rough they could put forward. Bravery is pride when one is young, and Fune was proud. There must have been anger in his mind as he went away leaving that lake behind him and those snarling and scowling boys. But they would have been disappointed also for his desire at this time should have been towards friendliness. He went thence to Loch Leyen and took service with the king of Fintraig. The kingdom may have been thus called from Fune himself and would have been known by another name when he arrived there. He hunted for the king of Fintraig and it soon grew evident that there was no hunter in his service to equal Fune. More, there was no hunter of them all, who even distantly approached him in excellence. The others ran after deer, using the speed of their legs, the noses of their dogs, and a thousand well-worn tricks to bring them within reach, and, often enough, the animal escaped them. But the deer that Fune got the track of did not get away, and it seemed that even the animals sought him, so many did he catch. The king marveled at the stories that were told of this new hunter, but as kings are greater than other people, so they are more curious, and being of the plane of excellence, they must see all that is excellently told of. The king wished to see him, and Fune must have wondered what the king thought as that gracious lord looked on him. Whatever was thought, what the king said was a direct in utterance as it was in observation. If Uwale the son of Bysons has a son, said the king, you would surely be that son. We are not told if the king of Fintraig said anything more, but we know that Fune left his service soon afterwards. He went southwards and was next in the employment of the king of Kerry the same lord who had married his own mother. In that service, he came to such consideration that we hear of him as playing a match of chess with the king, and by this game we know that he was still a boy in his mind, however mightily his limbs were spreading. Able as he was in sports and huntings, he was yet too young to be politic. But he remained impolitic to the end of his days, for whatever he was able to do he would do, no matter who was offended thereat, and whatever he was not able to do, he would do also. That was Fune. 
Once, as they rested on a chase, a debate arose among the Fenian Finn as to what was the finest music in the world. Tell us that, said Fionn, turning to Ushin. The cuckoo calling from the tree, which is in the highest of the hedge, cried his merry son. A good sound, said Fionn. And you, Oscar, he asked. What is it to your mind, the finest of music? The top of music is the ring of a spear on a shield, cried the stout lad. It is a good sound, said Fume. And the other champions told their delight. The belling of a stag across water, the baying of a tuneful pack herd in the distance, the song of a lark, the laugh of a gleeful girl, or the whisper of a moved one. They are good sounds all, said Fume. Tell us, chief, one ventured. What do you think? The music of what happens, said Great Fune. That is the finest music in the world. He loved what happened and would not evade it by the swerve of a hair. So on this occasion, what was occurring he would have occur. Although a king was his rival and his master, it may be that his mother was watching the match and that he could not but exhibit his skill before her. He committed the enormity of winning seven games in succession from the king himself. It is seldom indeed that a subject can beat a king at chess, and this monarch was properly amazed. Who are you at all? He cried, staring back from the chessboard and staring on Fune. I am the son of a countryman, of the Luigni of Tara, said Fune. He may have blushed as he said it, for the king, possibly for the first time, was really looking at him, and was looking back through twenty years of time as he did so. The observation of a king is faultless. It is proved a thousand times over in the tales, and this king's equipment was as royal as the next. You are no such son, said the indignant monarch. But you are the son that Murin, my wife, bore to Uel Magbalsni. And at that, Fune had no more to say, but his eyes may have flown to his mother and stayed there. You cannot remain here, his stepfather continued. I do not want you killed under my protection, he explained, or complained. Perhaps it was on Fune's account he dreaded the sons of Morna, but no one knows what Fune thought of him for he never thereafter spoke of his stepfather. As for Murin, she must have loved her lord, or she may have been terrified in truth of the sons of Morna and for Fune. But it is so also, that if a woman loves her second husband, she can dislike all that reminds her of the first. Fune went on his travels again. Chapter 9 All desires save one are fleeting, but that one lasts forever. Fune, with all desires, had the lasting one, for he would go anywhere and forsake anything for wisdom, and it was in search of this that he went to the place where Finnegus lived on a bank of the Boiny water. But for dread of the clan mourner, he did not go as Fune. He called himself Diemni on that journey. We get wise by asking questions, and even if these are not answered, we get wise. For a well-packed question carries its answers on its back as a snail carries its shell. Fune asked every question he could think of, and his master, who was a poet, 
and so an honourable man, answered them all, not to the limit of his patience, for it was limitless, but to the limit of his ability. Why do you live on the bank of a river? was one of these questions. Because a poem is a revelation, and it is by the brink of running water that poetry is revealed to the mind. How long have you been here? was the next query. Seven years, the poet answered. It is a long time, said Wandering Fune. I would wait twice as long for a poem, said the inveterate bard. Have you caught good poems? Fune asked him. The poem I am fit for, said the mild master. No person can get more than that, for a man's readiness is his limit. Would you have got as good poems by the Shannon, or the Soar, or by Sweet Anna Life? They are good rivers, was the answer. They all belong to good gods. But why did you choose this river out of all rivers? Finnegus beamed on his pupil. I would tell you anything, said he, and I will tell you that. Fune sat at the kindly man's feet, his hands absent among tall grasses, and listening with all ears. A prophecy was made to me, Finnegus began. A man of knowledge foretold that I should catch the salmon of knowledge in the boiny water. And then, said Fune eagerly, then I would have all knowledge. And after that, the boy insisted, what should there be after that? The poet retorted, I mean, what would you do with all knowledge? A weighty question, said Finnegus smilingly. I could answer it if I had all knowledge, but not until then. What would you do, my dear? I would make a poem, Fune cried. I think too, said the poet, that that is what would be done. In return for instruction, Fune had taken over the service of his master's hut, and as he went about the household duties, drawing the water, lighting the fire, and carrying rushes for the floor and the beds, he thought over all the poet had taught him, and his mind dwelt on the rules of metre, the cunningness of words, and the need for a clean, brave mind. But in his thousand thoughts, he yet remembered the salmon of knowledge as eagerly as his master did. He already venerated Finnegus for his great learning, his poetic skill, for a hundred reasons, but looking on him as the ordained eater of the salmon of knowledge, he venerated him to the edge of measure. Indeed, he loved as well as venerated this master because of his unfailing kindness, his patience, his readiness to teach, and his skill in teaching. I have learned much from you, dear master said Fune gratefully. All that I have is yours, if you can take it. The poet answered, For you are entitled to all that you can take, but to no more than that. Take so, with both hands. You may catch the salmon while I am with you. The hopeful boy mused. Would not that be a great happening? And he stared, in ecstasy, across the grass at those visions which a boy's mind knows. 
Let us pray for that, said Finnegus fervently. Here is a question, Fune continued. How does this salmon get wisdom into his flesh? There is a hazel bush overhanging a secret pool in a secret place. The nuts of knowledge drop from the sacred bush into the pool, and as they float, a salmon takes them in his mouth and eats them. It would be almost as easy, the boy submitted, if one were to set on the track of a sacred hazel and eat the nuts straight from the bush. That would not be very easy, said the poet, and yet it is not as easy as that, for the bush can only be found by its own knowledge, and that knowledge can only be got by eating the nuts, and the nuts can only be got by eating the salmon. We must wait for the salmon, said Fune in a rage of resignation. Chapter 10 Life continued for him in a round of timeless time, wherein days and nights were uneventful and were yet filled with interest. As the day packed its load of strength into its frame, so it added its store of knowledge to his mind, and each night sealed the twain, for it is in the night that we make secure what we have gathered in the day. If he told of these days, he would have told of a succession of meals and sleeps, and of an endless conversation, from which his mind would now and again slip away to a solitude of its own, where, in large, hazy atmospheres, it swung and drifted and reposed. Then he would be back again, and it was a pleasure for him to catch up on the thought that was forward and recreate for it all the matter he had missed. But he could not often make these sleepy sallies. His master was too experienced a teacher to allow any such bright-faced, eager-eyed abstractions, and... As the druid woman had switched his legs around a tree, so Finnegus chased his mind, demanding sense in his questions and understanding in his replies. To ask questions can become the laziest and wobbliest occupation of a mind, but when you must yourself answer the problem that you have posed, you will meditate your question with care and frame it with precision. Fune's mind learned to jump in a bumpier field than that in which he had chased rabbits. And when he had asked his questions, and gave his own answer to it, Finnegus would take the matter up and make clear to him where the query was boldly formed, or at what point the answer had begun to go astray, so that Fune came to understand by what successions a good question grows at last to a good answer. One day, Finnegus came to the place where Fune was. The poet had a shallow, osier basket on his arm and on his face there was a look that was at once triumphant and gloomy. He was excited, certainly, but he was sad also, and as he stood gazing on Fune, his eyes were so kind that the boy was touched, and they were yet so melancholy that it almost made Fune weep. "'What is it, my master?' said the alarmed boy. The poet placed his osier basket on the grass. "'Look in the basket, dear son,' he said. Fune looked. There is a salmon in the basket. <sighs> it is the salmon, said Finnegus with a great sigh. Fune leapt for the light. I'm glad for you, master, he cried. Indeed, I am glad for you. And I am glad, my dear soul, the master rejoined. 
But having said it, he bent his brow to his hand. And for a long time he was silent and gathered into himself. What should be done now? Fune demanded, as he stared on the beautiful fish. Finnegus rose from where he sat by the osier basket. I will be back in a short time, he said heavily. While I'm away, you must roast the salmon, so that it will be ready against my return. I will roast it indeed, said Fune. The poet gazed long and earnestly on him. You will not eat any of my salmon while I'm away? He asked. I will not eat the littlest piece, said Fune. I am sure you will not. The other murmured, as he turned and walked slowly across the grass and behind the sheltering bushes on the ridge. Fune cooked the salmon. It was beautiful and tempting and savoury as it smoked on a wooden platter among cool green leaves, and it looked all these to Finnegus when he came from behind the fringing bushes and sat in the grass outside his door. He gazed on the fish with more than his eyes. He looked on it with his heart, with his soul, with his eyes. And when he turned to look on Fune, did not know whether the love that was in his eyes was for the fish or for himself. Yet he did know that a great moment had arrived for the poet. So, said Finnegus, you did not eat it on me after all. Did I not promise? Fune replied. And yet, his master continued, I went away so that you might eat the fish, if you felt you had to. Another man's fish, said proud Fune. Because young people have strong desires, I thought you might have tasted it, and then you would have eaten it on me. <laughs> I did taste it by chance, Fune laughed. For while the fish was roasting, a great blister rose on its skin. I did not like the look of that blister. I pressed it down with my thumb. That burned my thumb. So I popped it in my mouth to heal the smart. <laughs> if your salmon tastes as nice as my thumb did, he laughed. It will taste very nice. What did you say your name was, dear heart? The poet asked. I said my name was Diemni. Your name is not Diemni, said the mild man. Your name is Fune. That is true, the boy answered. But I do not know how you know it. Even if I have not eaten the salmon of knowledge, I have some small science of my own. It is very clever to know things as you know them, Fune replied wonderingly. What more do you know of me, dear master? I know that I do not tell you the truth, said the heavy-hearted man. What did you tell me instead of it? I told you a lie. It is not a good thing to do, Fune admitted. What sort of lie was the lie, master? I told you that the salmon of knowledge was to be caught by me, according to prophecy. Yes. That was true indeed, and I have caught the fish. But I did not tell you that the salmon was not meant to be eaten by me. Although that also was in the prophecy, and that omission was the lie. It is not a great lie, said Fune soothingly. It must not become a greater one. The poet replied sternly, Who was the fish given to? 
his companion wondered. It was given to you. Finnegus answered, It was given to Fune, the son of Uea, the son of Baisni, and it will be given to him. You shall have a half of the fish, cried Fune. I will not eat a piece of its skin. That is as small as the point of its smallest bone, said the resolute and trembling bard. Let you now eat up the fish. I shall watch you and give praise to the gods of the underworld and of the elements. Fune then ate the salmon of knowledge, and when it had disappeared, a great jollity and tranquility and exuberance returned to the poet. Ah, said he, I had a great combat with that fish. Did it fight for its life? Fune inquired. It did, but that was not the fight I meant. You shall eat a salmon of knowledge too, Fune assured him. You have eaten one, cried the blithe poet, and if you make such a promise, it will be because you know. I promise it and know it, said Fune. You shall eat a salmon of knowledge yet. And this concludes chapters 7 to 10 of The Boyhood of Fune. There are only a couple of chapters left, so I'll finish them off on Monday, and if I get a chance, I'll squeeze in a creepypasta or something special to spice things up. We've gotten to see Fune battle some kids and show them up, be the best hunter in a kingdom where his mother was married to the king, and then move on to another journey to meet a poet that offered him a fish of knowledge. These are some really unique and special storylines, and I especially loved it when Fune asked about how the salmon was able to obtain the knowledge, and go figure, from the nuts of knowledge? First time I've ever heard that. It would have been interesting to see what the poet would have said about where the bush gained its knowledge. Huh. If anyone knows more about this nuts of knowledge that it has, I'd love to find out. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the past couple of Irish folktale stories. The finale for this one will be on Monday, and I can't wait to share the rest of it with you. Have a fantastic Friday night, or brilliant morning, may it go swiftly and smoothly. And hopefully that morning or night is full of Earl Grey. Or equally delicious hot beverages. <laughs> Stay creepy, my ghouls and ghasts. And I'll see you next Monday. As always, till next time.